Hi, this is John. Today on Theocast, Justin and I, well, we talk about theonomy. It's a pretty hot topic, but please hear us out before you turn it off. We are trying to be accurate in representing what theonomy has taught and is teaching today and the reform response to that, specifically covenant theology from a 1689 Federalist position. We try to be charitable and gracious. We're hoping iron sharpens iron here and that we can all glorify and love our Father together. Stay tuned. We are excited to announce we have a brand new podcast available called the Kingsmen Podcast. It's where we are reclaiming biblical manhood by training and equipping men for the work of the kingdom. You can find it anywhere you download a podcast. You can also watch it on YouTube. We have new episodes that come out every Monday. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed and pastoral and confessional perspective. Your hosts today are Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. And I'm John Moffat. I'm the pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where there's lots of pollen. So lots of sneezing today. Say less. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's good to be with you, Justin. We've had the opportunity to already talk and deal with technological problems. Praise God. As it seems we always do these things. For his mercy and grace. That's right. He is sanctifying right. me, John. Yeah, he is. There you go. There you go. A couple announcements for you. Uh, If you didn't know, Theocast does have a store. And in there, you can get some books. You can get merch like hats and shirts and, I don't know, stickers, stuff like that in there. If you so choose to support us in that way. A big announcement that that came out recently is Theocast U is available, where we already have 18 classes with lectures Uh, Several lectures. We have a a Reformed Theology Masterclass in there. Anyways, it's just an additional way for us to help provide, I think, a a lot more uh, of an educational level. You know, our podcast would be definitely kind of on the pop surface level to kind of help people understand on a general and be encouraged. If you want to go to more of like a seminary lecture style, then that's available. You can go check that out. So just go to theocast.org and uh, look for Simple Reformanda. That's it, JP. That's all the announcements I got, man. We're working on stuff. Pray for GRN. That's uh, <laughs> underway. And uh, we got talks about a conference. Not that there's no dates. Just talking about it. No so, dates. No dates. We're talking about TBD. It, that's right. Well, yeah. uh, two minutes. That's pretty good. Let's go ahead and jump into it, JP. This, yep. uh, this We need every minute possible to cover something that, unfortunately, you and I aren't excited about, but it is something that we're going to have to respond to because it's rising in the ranks and it's starting to, um, I think, if influence a lot of people. So sure. talk to us about theonomy. Give us an introduction to what it is, and then you and I will do our best to respond to it in the next two episodes. Word. As you said, this is the first of two episodes on theonomy. This first one is going to be a little bit more overtly theological. We're going to try to talk a little bit about what theonomy is not at great length. Uh, we'll refer you, we'll link you to some articles and some different things that have been written so that you can read more about definitions of theonomy, better understand it. We'll try to briefly define it, and then we want to respond theologically in this first episode. And then in the second one, we plan to consider more of the street-level fallout of theonomy and some of our pastoral concerns with it and how we might respond as pastors of local churches. And yeah. so we hope both these episodes are helpful, maybe in different ways. 
And so let's begin by talking about theonomy and what it is. I'm going to briefly offer this as, as a definition, and then I'll read some quotes from, in my opinion, the most intentional, deliberate theonomist, Greg Bonson, um, who's no longer with us, but wrote, you know, decades ago. Hey, Jesse, so, can I jump in real go quick? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I know you're going to mention probably some more names, but like Rush Dooney and mm-hmm. um, there's the, the, um, most of the guys who originated uh, theonomy, kind of the backbone of it, have passed away. Right. And so your, your prominent probably people who are now pushing it further would be like Canon Press, uh, Doug Wilson, sure. uh, Apologia Radio, yeah, Jeff, Durbin. Uh, Jeff Durbin. And even right. I would say, uh, I think James White is starting to fall into that camp as right. well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Those so, are the, the kind of contemporary, and some of those guys are a little bit more pop level yes. and pastoral level with their argumentation. Whereas the older school guys writing in the 80s, 90s were more academic and were more deliberately exegetical, I think, in their mm-hmm. attempts to argue for it. So, and, and Greg Bonson I, being kind of the seminal figure amongst those. That's yeah. right. Can I throw one more asterisk before you start reading? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so uh, Justin and I, you know, are on our podcast, we're trying to be pastoral and always gracious and kind. So I know there will be theonomists who listen to this basically because the title is here and it's a very hot topic. So sure. my encouragement to my brothers <clears throat> who are listening and my sisters who are listening to this, um, do us a favor. We try to read you and we try to listen to you and hear your arguments. And we try to represent you as you would like to be represented. So mm-hmm. we're going to do our best to do that. We're not going to try and use straw men. We're going to use your words, your, your understandings. And our hope would be as iron sharpens iron and as brothers who love Christ together, that you would hear us out. And before you respond or retweet this or share this, uh, maybe um, try and listen to what our feedback is so that we can start having a progressive conversation. I just feel like we shoot shots over the bows at each other. And uh, I just don't feel like it's beneficial for you or for us. So that that would be my one takeaway on this before Justin starts reading. And we, we try to accurately represent what theonomy is. Sure. So my own definition to begin, and then I'm going to read a little bit of Bonson to try to support it. And then I'll make a few other comments about how this often manifests itself. Like I've said a few times, street level. Uh, hopefully my voice will hold up. I lost it last week. I'm, I'm, <laughs> we'll see. So theonomy essentially asserts that the judicial laws of the Mosaic Covenant are normative for all geopolitical entities. So civil governments are obligated, in other words, to enforce old covenant judicial laws, along with their penalties, and any law not included in the old covenant judicial code would be out of bounds, right? So in other words, theonomy understands that God has given the universal blueprint for civil government in the Mosaic judicial law. God has given us a template for how we do statecraft, and it's called the Judicial Code of Moses, right? And so I think it's important that before I even read Bonson, I just want to acknowledge this, that like the listener needs to understand that theonomy often comes packaged with Christian reconstructionism, you know, kind of the rebuilding of Christendom or the building of a Christian society. It often comes packaged with a particular kind of post-millennial eschatology that's very optimistic. Um, so in theory, it's possible to pull those things apart. Oftentimes, practically on the street, boots on the ground, it, that doesn't occur. They often no. come together. And if right. you, if you do, if you are familiar with Canon press, or if you're familiar with apologia, you see a lot of these things coming together. 
Mm-hmm. That said, our aim today is to deal with theonomy historically and theologically. And let me read a little bit of Greg Bonson again, who I would understand to be a seminal figure in the the movement, yeah. in the the stream of thought. And for my money too, I think that he is the most intentional, deliberate, exegetical guy as I've read and, and examined these things. So I'm going to read a few quotes from Bonson's book called By This Standard, The Authority of God's Law Today. He says, quote, the New Testament does not teach any radical change in God's law regarding the standards of sociopolitical morality. God's law, as it touches upon the duty of civil magistrates, has not been altered in any systematic or fundamental way in the New Testament. So there he's arguing for what I was mentioning earlier. Right. He continues on. We must recognize the continuing obligation of civil magistrates to obey and enforce the relevant laws of the Old Testament, including the penal sanctions specified by the just judge of all the earth. As with the rest of God's law, we must presume continuity of binding authority regarding the sociopolitical commandments revealed as standing law in the Old Testament. Last one. It is advocated that we should presume the abiding authority of any Old Testament commandment until and unless the New Testament reveals otherwise. And this presumption holds just as much for laws pertaining to the state as for laws pertaining to the individual. So there's a number of things going on there theologically that we're going to try to deal with in this podcast. Last comment from me in terms of chalking the field, I want to be fair here. Yeah, Reconstructionist theonomy and a different stream referred to often as general equity theonomy are not one and the same. No. And so reconstructionist theonomy involves the establishment of, of Christendom in a, in a Christian society, whereas general equity theonomy is going to argue for looking to the judicial law, finding the principles that it contains, and then seeking to apply that in geopolitical reality today, in geopolitical entities today. And what we're going to try to do today is, is argue against both effectively by getting at the sort of kernel of of the argumentation. So, That's right. Any comments you want to add about theonomy and what it is, John, yeah. before we pivot to our responses? Yeah, I spend a lot of time in, interacting, reading, and I try <coughs> and uh, what I do, I do a bake method where I kind of let it just ruminate for a long time. I don't try and make conclusions based on the first thing I read or the first author. What you do realize, as you said, there, there are different applications and there aren't agreement on all of theonomy as far yeah, as and all theonomists don't agree no that would be they're not monolithic yeah Mm-mm, definitely not and so to to say all theonomists believe this then that's just not necessarily true i i do want to start with one one of my interactions is um when i'm on the internet or in twitter i you can eventually start to pick out who a theonomist is it's because it's how they talk about the law and I, this happened to me recently uh there was uh, Dr. R. Scott Clark from Westminster and myself and another person were g- getting tagged into this theocast, you know, debate on whether we're, we're uh, antinomians or not. And the way he was using the law, I was, I eventually just stopped and asked him, are you a theonomist? And he eventually said, yes, he was, which made sense to me because he was using the law against us in a way that reformed theology doesn't use the law. It, it's, right. it's, it's a, it's an outside use from history. And I would say biblically, biblically, we're going to argue that, uh, I, I will give this to my brothers. They are trying to be faithful and love our father and represent him well. Oh yeah. You know what? Praise God for you. And Super they're concerned. Thankful. They're concerned with faithfulness. Yep. All of those things. I, I trust their motivations are good. Yeah. yeah. And they, 
rightly assess the world in that it's it's debaucherous. It's horrendous. Sure. So we we don't hate sin any less than a theonomist does. You know, we hate abortion. We hate homosexuality. I don't mean hate in the sense of like, I hate the person, but we, do, we don't like what the world does to the beautiful creation of God. Uh, it's offensive to us. And this is why we proclaim the gospel and why I know theonomists proclaim the gospel as well. So the second mistake that I have heard people who oppose, so there's, there's a mistake from the theonomist side. Let me start there. Uh, they assume we do not hold the law of God in its proper and high place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when someone asks, when when a theonomist defines theonomy, they just say, well, theos, namas, just means God's law. You love God's law, right? You think you should uphold God's law. And I'm, I'm not trying to say they're being facetious, but that's not the whole definition of theonomy. That's a definition from the Greek words it translated yeah. into English. Theos, namas. Yeah. yeah, but that's not what they're advocating for. And so what this, in the, on the surface level, in the beginning, conversation. We're arguing over whether you really believe in God's law and it's sufficient and you should trust it and uphold it as being righteous. If you do not hold the theonomist view of the law, then you basically are lessening God's holiness and you're lessening the law. And Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's a fair argument. I'm going to start there. And guys, that's my experience. I'm not saying every theonomist says this or does this. So I'm not whitewashing or just broad brushing. I'm just saying the experience I have had, this is the debate. Now, I'm going to defend theonomists now, okay? Uh, one of the argumentation that has often been used is that theonomists believe that the world is transformed to be Christian by the law. Right. They don't. They, they don't, don't teach that. And it's not fair. It's a straw man. We got to stop saying that. Mm-hmm. They believe well, in this. Say, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I was going to say, they pre- theonomists that I know, they believe in justification by grace through faith in Christ yes. alone and preach that. And they don't yes. assume that the law changes anybody's heart. No. So I want to be very fair. Yeah, agree. Nope. Yeah, and I and I think that what ends up happening is they're trying to clarify their position, and they're they're defending off attacks that aren't true. So I don't want to attack them where they don't need to be attacked, and I don't even attack anybody. I don't I don't want to ask for clarity where there doesn't need to be clarity. So I, I'm thankful that you preach justification by faith alone. You hold yeah. to the five solas. Praise God right. for you, men. They uh, theonomists tend to be theologically conservative and astute. They're wise men. So I'm not here to tell the, that they're uneducated and any of right. that. We're, we're just, we're not going down those roads. It's not helpful. It's not part of the debate. So now that we've yep. set that up on either side, we who are reformed hold very high God's law. We're going to right now get into the threefold divisions of the law. I'll let, I'll let you set that up, Justin, because I've been talking a lot, uh, but we hold it high and we want to try and use biblical language to define where the law is applicable and where it is not. Okay. So Justin, if you, unless you had other comments, we can no, I don't. jump into, we, yeah. we got to get going on it. So we're going to respond theologically to theonomy effectively in, in three primary ways. The first of which we as confessional reform guys, and most everybody listening probably knows John and I both subscribe to the second London confession. And being confessional reform guys, we uphold what has historically been known as the threefold division of the law. So in our confession, it's chapter 19. There would be a mm-hmm. corresponding chapter in the Westminster Standards as well. And the threefold division of the law is this, that the law of God, in particular, as we think about the law of God given through Moses, can be broken down into three separate categories. Uh, the first category is the moral law. Now, I just said the law given through Moses. Let me explain what I mean. The moral law, as we understand it, is the law that God wrote into creation. He wrote on the human conscience. 
and then was given to Moses, summarized in 10 words, written down on two tablets of stone. So the moral law contains what man must do in order to be righteous in God's sight. It is inherently moral. It is known innately, right? We're going to get into some of this more and more here in just a minute. And the moral law is immutable. It doesn't change because it reflects the character of God who gave it. It is binding on all men at all time because it, again, it exists from the beginning. It exists prior to any other covenant arrangement being made. It is literally written into the world that the Lord has spoken into existence. Part of the DNA. That's right. Correct. And so it is binding on all men at all time. It transcends any unique era of redemptive history. And we're going to get into maybe texts more in just a minute, but we would see this in the New Testament supported by texts like Romans 2, 14 yeah. to 15, yep. and also Romans 5, 12 to 14. And it's very plain that the moral law of God is binding and that even the moral law is a piece of the covenant that God made with Adam is a thing. That's so that's the moral law. The next kind of law, in addition to the moral law, God gave Israel ceremonial laws. These pertain to institutions under that covenant. They are typological in nature. They contain many commands related to Israel's worship, and they also contain moral obligations. But they all point to the Messiah to come, the Savior who would come and fulfill them and are abrogated thereby by Christ when he comes. So that's the ceremonial law. The third category of law would be the civil law or the judicial law. Those terms are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Those are the laws that God gave to govern the nation state of Israel. And we would understand that those laws cease to be binding on any geopolitical entity once Israel under the old covenant ceases to be. That's what our confession states. So that's the threefold division of law, moral, ceremonial, and civil. We can link maybe to our episode that we did last year. Yes. Is the law relevant today Mm -hmm. where we deal with the threefold division of the law? Yeah. Let's unpack this a little bit as to how this is relevant. Now, sometimes uh, you will hear an argument, well, there's nowhere in scripture that makes that division. You guys are pushing, that's a reformed uh, dogma. You're pushing on top of the text. And, you know, is the actual division, like did, did one of the disciples make that or Christ make that division? No, they did not. But when you read the application of the law and you look at how the law is being used, it's it's easy to, to come to a walking away saying, okay, this is how it's being used. Justin, um, specifically, we're dealing a lot with the uh, civil <clears throat> and ceremonial. I, I think that just to help someone, this might even be brand new, that word ceremonial, might even just be brand new. I think it would be healthy just to stop. So people, when we keep using these phrases, if this is a new term for you, I think it'd be helpful. Like give it, give an example so of what examples. a ceremonial law yeah, would ceremonial be. Ceremonial laws pertain, like here, I can list, rattle off a number. So yeah. you have the priesthood. That's right. And its function. You have the sacrificial system in total. You have particular days that are related to sacrifice, like the day of atonement. Right. You have the feasts. You have all of those sorts of things. Food laws. Yeah. Um, you know, so this laws is, related to this is God Jubilee, using, right? God's using a system to set the nation <coughs> apart, right? Yeah. To set them apart. And so they they are given and, these laws. Go ahead. And the ceremonial law in particular teaches the people a lot about how they would be saved and reconciled to God because right. atonement needs to be made for sin. They need a mediator. 
right? All right. Their, their sin needs to be atoned for and taken away from them. There's that's all right. of that stuff. So when you said typology or a type or even a shadow, something that's pictured. Typological, uh, yeah. Typological. God gave, God gave the ceremonial system. Yeah. So it would show them what atonement looks like, what cleansing sure. looks like, what being sure. set apart looks like. And, so it's important to understand the nature of that section of the law. Yeah, and the, those laws served a purpose in their context. So you were ceremonially clean through the sacrifices of, of goats and calves, right? But right. we read in the New Testament that those things could never take away sins. And ultimately, they were pointing to something other and greater, right. which he is Christ for us, that Jesus right. came to die and to make atonement, to cleanse us in a way that those sacrifices never could. Right. Civil so that's law an example. Now. Right. So civil, civil law. law. Uh, uh, how would we cer- describe civil? Go ahead. Civil law is all of the things related to how Israel as a nation state would govern itself. So there's a lot of stuff there regarding, you know, how like laws pertaining to inheritance, particular codes in terms of how certain disputes are to be settled, uh, how this issue is to be addressed, et cetera, that has to do with just civil society and its arrangement as the nation state of Israel. If your animal killed somebody, how do you rectify that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So those are but all that the, was the related civil and to that laws. particular. And to get into this, those particular ceremonial and civil laws were related specifically to a, a unique nation that had a unique purpose, which Absolutely. we're going to get into we're in just get into a, minute. a minute. Right. Yeah. So now we're going to get a little bit nerdy. Hey, look, this is fun. But, uh, Justin, do we want to now explain yes. the moral and positive? Okay. Yeah. So uh, another prong of our response, and these are all kind of building on each other, and I That's trust right. that will become plain, That's right. is the distinction between moral law and positive law. Or let me be clear here, in this portion of the pod, when we say moral law, that should be understood to be synonymous with natural law. So we're talking about the distinction between natural law and positive law, between moral law and positive law. And so right. what we mean by natural or still, moral law, do not law, kill. Do, yeah, in this that, yeah. instance, is this Again, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments, That's but it right. is Summarizes this law things. written into creation, written on the human conscience that is That's known right. innately by all. That's the moral. It's the light of nature that yep. we can appeal to, whereas positive laws are different. They are posited by decree or by kingly fiat. They are not dealing with things that are inherently moral or immoral, but once the command, the decree is attached to them, they become so. That's Examples. Right. Eating the fruit of a tree is not inherently sin. That's right. But when God says, don't eat the fruit of that tree, it becomes sin. That's right. Circumcision, right? Not inherently moral or immoral to cut the foreskin off of, you know, your eight-year-old or eight-day-old boy. That, but when God says, you must do it, that decree makes it an issue of faithfulness. It makes it an issue of morality. That's and right. we could go on and give a number of other examples. I trust those so two he, will he, suffice. Right. So that's a... A positive law can it's it's a weird way of saying it if you're not I remember the first time I heard it I'm like was there a negative law <laughs> correct. correct so what what it means it I, I think is a good de- definition uh, by divine fiat it's it's correct. being decreed it's, you could even say decreed, decreed law that's yeah. right yeah yeah and that's important to understand that the, those two because all right I'll just kind of jump into some of the theonomy argumentation Justin is that one of the biggest one is that there is a there is a struggle to believe that the moral law is sufficient to accomplish what it has been presented to do which is to govern right. the heart of men 
in the minds of men. And uh, this is why even the Bonson's book says by this standard, you know, the question is often asked in his book, by what standard (laughs) do we tell someone they are right or not right before God if we're not using the law is what typically has been given. Yeah. And we would absolutely say that regarding the moral law. That's right. Again, known innately. People know to kill someone is wrong. Right. People know to steal something is wrong, right? That's what's unique about the moral law or in the natural law, right? The light of nature. We can appeal to it. Whereas when it comes to the positive laws, nobody would know innately. Nobody would know that they should obey it unless they're told to. That's right. Again, remember, nobody would know that I don't eat the fruit of that tree unless I'm told that. Nobody would know that I need to circumcise my son unless I'm told that. Nobody would know that I'm supposed to let my, you know, pick, I'm kind of collapsing some categories here, but in terms of positive laws, nobody would know that I'm supposed to rest my fields on the seventh year, or nobody would know that this is how we're to handle an issue of a of kinsman redeemer. Like if, if I, if my brother is married, you know, under the old covenant, right? If my brother's married to his wife and they don't have children and he dies, then I, as his brother, am to marry her and have children for my brother's sake. Nobody would know that. That's right. You know, unless you're told to do it. And I don't want to jump the gun here. We're going to get into this in a minute, but we would understand that the ceremonial law and the civil law of Israel are positive law. Right. Whereas the moral law is moral and it is natural law in that regard. We can appeal to it as such. Right. And it's which has a ton of implication for what is binding on people today in a different era of redemptive history. So for those of you that maybe have lost, you know, we've we've been going through. So let me bring this back so you understand. Part of the debate here is it um, should nations be required to live under positive law, exactly, and then be punished by their corresponding judgment that God puts upon it. That's the debate that theonomy is about. So we wanted yep. to take this time to appropriately represent them and also set up the situation <clears throat> and say that, okay, there's some collapsing and confusion of yeah. categories here. And a really important, really important, like flashing red light important thing to say at this point, and it makes sense now to say it. Theonomists, in terms of the traditional argumentation, like Greg Bonson, for example, they see not a threefold division of the law, but a twofold division of the law. That's right. Rather than seeing moral, ceremonial, and civil, they see only moral and ceremonial. That's and right. what they do, and what Bonson says, is that the judicial law of Moses is moral law, That's just right. illustratively applied. So, in that sense, the theonomic argument is that the judicial law is moral law. And we would say, no, the moral law stands on its own, the ceremonial law we agree about. And the civil law of Moses was a particular set of commandments, particular laws given to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time for a particular purpose. That's right. They're positive so, law, not moral. In right. And the argumentation to to be a theonomist at the moment and defend my brothers in this area, their argumentation is that what your guys are saying is that the whole law is not good. It's not holy. It's not right. We shouldn't love it. Right. And the way and they'll use passages old and new to defend the the, the twofold division of the law sure. and that the ceremonial side of it should be abrogated. Right. 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 Which so we agree I, on. We agree on, but the the civil side of it, they would say, no, we need to look at that as good. 
and right for all humans in all places, just like- The blueprint for civil society. The blue, right. So we're collapsing something that was positive, that was given to a nation for a specific purpose and a reason. And the argumentation is, well, the Bible references the law as good. And therefore, if it's good and right and holy and loved, all people in all times should love the law and obey the law in that in that particular way. Right. And we absolutely agree that the law of God is good and holy and upright. And in particular, we're going to say that about the moral law. But right. we would say the same thing about the ceremonial and civil law, rightly understood in the context of biblical revelation, rightly understood via the biblical covenants, which is the arguments that we're trying to make today. And I want to be very plain to say that the civil law of Moses or the judicial law of Moses is circumstantial does not mean that it's arbitrary. No. It was intentional, purposeful, good, right, and perfect for Israel. That's right. And that has everything to do with the purposes of God in and through Israel, which is effectively where we're going to go in just a moment. Right. I think a couple more comments of clarification while we're on this distinction between moral and sure. positive law sure. are, are good to make. So we are going to appeal to not only the light of nature, the natural law, but we're also going to appeal to the covenant God made with Noah in a number of ways when it comes to the establishment of civil society and the governing of those societies. So yeah. the Noahic covenant establishes proportionate retributive justice, right? That if you take the life of a human being, your life is required. So in that regard, it's not the law of Moses that establishes such a thing. It's the covenant God made with Noah that applies to all human beings at all times. And the reason that is, right? is that wasn't made to a specific nation. Correct. That was made to all humanity because Noah, basically, they restarted humanity. <laughs> represents, effectively represents all of us in that regard. That's right. And God makes a covenant with him. I'm going to sustain the creation. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be things that are going to be upheld that I am saying you should uphold the building of civil society, procreation, and proportionate retributive justice is good in this fallen world. Because if you take someone's life, then your life should be required of you. If right. you harm another person, in terms of their their life, their property, then the civil magistrate should step in and in an act of proportionate retributive justice, act on behalf of the victim. Right. That's Noahic covenant principle. And so we would absolutely uphold that and, and affirm it in every way, but that is different than what the theonomists are appealing to. That's correct. So yeah, the, I, I trust we've said enough for now, and yeah. let's pivot to our kind of last prong. So our our threefold response theologically to theonomy, one, threefold division of the law and what that means today, then the distinction between moral and positive law and what that means today. Now we're going to talk about covenant theology, particularly from our perspective as 1689 Federalists, and how this really helps us see the unique purposes that God has in and through Israel under the old covenant. And then what that's going to mean, how God deals with them, how he gives them the law, the covenants that he makes with them, how that's going to affect what we carry over from the old covenant into the new covenant era. So all that hopefully in the next 15 minutes. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a primer on rest. And if you struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. 
So typically at this point, we would stop <coughs> and this would be the end of the podcast and we would carry over into Semper Reformanda. Uh, but once in a while, we like to stop and just let you guys in on what does SR look like, which tends to be a little bit more heady and lively. So instead of pausing here, welcome to Semper Reformanda. We're just going to continue the conversation. Yeah. And basically we're continuing the convo today. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um yeah, Justin, this next section I think is important. Now, if you're new to us, list, you know, to the podcast and the whole idea of covenant theology might be new to you and 1689 federalism might be new to you. Uh, we have some uh, material on this, a lot of it available. I did something on 69 federalism uh, on YouTube. We've got multiple things we've done on covenant theology. So uh, we're going to try our best to keep this at a uh, uh, high level so and, you can follow us. And then we're going to link to an article that I wrote recently, uh, right. kind of an essay for a, a journal that's going to have an overview of 1689 federalism as a part of it as well. So that, there's a number yeah, that of different links, things you can That read. links in the comment, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Justin, now um, I don't, man, I feel like we have been flying by. We could have done probably hours on this, but this is, this has been complicated. So here's, here's where the table's at. And then I'm going to toss it to you to help us ex look at this from a covenantal Federalist position. The playing field we're dealing with is um, we've got we've got a people of God that He has selected, and in in drawing these people to Himself, He gave them a specific promise, and in those promises, He gave them, He posited to them laws. Right sure. on top of the moral law, He posited to them these civil and ceremonial laws. And those particularly in our in the theonomist view, they believe that they go past Israel and they go on to all the, nations for all people. Part. The yeah. civil part, right? They, we agree with them on the, the the ending, the abrogation, the ceremonial, but the civil side of it moves forward, right? right. So we're going to take that argument here and move that now into covenant theology and say, actually, yeah. there's an answer to what the civil law was intended for, and we're going to show from covenant theology that. There isn't a continuation past Israel. Here's why, Justin. Yeah. So I'm going to be super, super quick, and I'm going to probably feel remiss because there's so much I'm going to leave out. But for <laughs> our purposes right now, a few high, high-level comments before we dig in a little bit on some of the finer points. So as covenantal theologians, historically defined, we uphold the, the um Man alive, the tricovenantal framework of scripture, right? So we, <laughs> we've got the covenant of redemption and eternity past, right? Made between persons of the Godhead, pointedly between the Father and the Son, where they're going to save an elect people. And in particular, it's the work of the Son that's going to do that. And he, for his part, he will be rewarded with these people as his inheritance who will live resurrected in a new heavens and a new earth with him forever. So that's the covenant of redemption. Then the covenant of works God makes with Adam, right? Where Adam represents the entire human race. He can earn eternal life through obedience. He can earn death, spiritual, temporal, and eternal through disobedience, right? We know what happened there. Then upon Adam's fall, you have the covenant of grace, right? Which is promised in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. And then we understand that that promise of the covenant of grace, uh, or the covenant of grace promised in Genesis 3.15 is revealed by farther steps throughout the Old Testament through the covenants that are subservient to it, namely Abraham, Moses, David. Mm -hmm. And then that covenant of grace is established and accomplished in the coming of Christ in the new covenant. So that's an overview of our theological framework. What I will say right now for our purposes is that we would see a 
a level of discontinuity between the old and the new covenant that's going to be really important when it comes to what is carried over directly from the old covenant into the new. We uphold one covenant of grace in all of Scripture, and we also, as 1689 Federalists, uphold the newness of the new covenant. That's right. So it is not, and with with all due respect to our paedo-baptistic covenantal theologians who listen to us, uh, we love you and respect you, and we appreciate you guys putting up with us and kind of holding your noses while you do that. But we would say that one covenant, two administrations is not what the Scripture teaches. We would understand one covenant of grace that is promised and revealed in the Old Old Testament and the Old Covenant, established and accomplished in the New. That's right. And so that slight, slightly more, uh, like a slightly higher level of discontinuity in our covenantal theological framework is significant when it, it comes is. to this conversation. It is. Yeah. I'll so let's jump talk in. a little bit more about Israel yeah. and God's purposes through them. Yeah. And I'll jump in here and say our pedo-baptist uh, friends are going to agree with what I'm about to say. So that's that, that's the encouraging yeah. part here uh, in that our arguments against theonomy are going to be in agreement here. Uh, there was a specific um, promise and fulfillment made with Israel. We we know this to be true because, uh, you know, it, the, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back this way. Theonomists say that Christ says, I have not come to abrogate or to do away with the law, but I've come to fulfill it, which means there's a, some would argue that there's this ongoing fulfillment of it, meaning that it's not like it's filled and done, but there's this ongoing fulfillment of it, which means the the world then becomes under the fulfillment of the law, which means the whole world is under the civil law, right? Uh, you know, we, we would say that when you're reading the New Testament, you don't see a reinstitution or an even a hope of a reinstitution of a civil-like government with Israel. You even have Paul and Peter telling the church that they are to submit to their governing bodies, not in waiting an expectation for there to be another nation, because that particular prophecy and promise to type and shadow sure. was fulfilled in Christ. Sure. So therefore, that's when he says the old is gone, the old is done away with. That means it fulfilled its purpose in sign. That's yeah, what it fulfilled. I, if I may briefly insert, sure. I think this is helpful here. The institutional form of the people of God on earth in the old covenant was the nation of Israel. That's right. A geopolitical entity. The institutional form of the people of God on earth in the new covenant is the church, which is not a geopolitical entity in no, any sense. Every tribe, it's actually made up of exactly. It's made up of people from every tribe, language, people, nation. And so that alone. And Presbyterians and Baptists and Reformed Church folks all agree on this. 100%. That logic alone is reason enough to rethink how we would apply civil judicial law to any geopolitical entity in the New Covenant era. That's right. That said, here's the, the overarching thing that I would want to emphasize in this conversation pertaining to covenant theology. The purposes of God in and through the nation of Israel are redemptive. Primarily, that is the main thing God is doing. It is a redemptive purpose with Christ at the center. And so all of the work that God does in and through Israel is to accomplish the redemption of God's people through the promised Christ that would come from the people of Israel who lived in the land of Canaan. That's right. And so the laws even that God gives to govern that people need to be seen in light of that reality, that these laws were given to a stiff-necked and stubborn people 
we're the same way, but given to a stiff-necked and stubborn people to protect them, to preserve them, to preserve the line of promise so that the Christ could come and accomplish God's eternal plan to save. That's right. That's huge. Well, even that we the Abrahamic covenant, that. yeah, even the yeah. Abrahamic covenant foretells of this. Sure. So the Abrahamic, this is cool, really quickly. The old covenant is made up of three covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. That equals right. the old covenant. Right. So in the covenant God made with Abraham, he establishes a people and he's going to give them a land. Then he gives, through Moses, gives the law that's going to, not there's the moral law, there's the ceremonial, and then there's the civil that's going to govern them. Then he's going to make the covenant with David where he's going to promise that there's going to be a Davidic king who's going to sit on the throne forever. Mm -hmm. And then we learn most pointedly in 1 Kings chapter 9 that that king is going to represent the people according to the law. That's if right. the king obeys it will go well for the nation. If the king disobeys, the nation will be cut off, right? right? So all of that is what we mean when we say that the, the promise of the covenant of grace is made in Genesis 3 and revealed further and further through the pages of the Old Testament, through those subservient covenants, so that we're learning all the time who the Christ is going to be and what he's going to come and do. That's right. And so if we ever lose that focus, we're going to tend to misinterpret the the laws that are contained uniquely within these particular covenants. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, you can even think about the nature of the new covenant, right? We look at Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 33 mm -hmm. or 36, sorry, um, where they're talking about there's a, there's a whole new nature, a whole new side of it, and there's a whole new interaction with it. Right. And that, that new nature, new side, new interaction, we are no longer governed by law. We're governed by the Spirit, right? Sure. The, the Word of God is put in our hearts. So... There, there is a, and then when you come to the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit's poured out on the disciples, you see an advancement of God's kingdom. And this is why I sometimes I, I when I bring this up to theonomists, they will, they use the interesting language like, well, yeah, that's before Christ's resurrection. Like when Jesus says, my kingdom was not of this world because if it was of this world, we would be fighting. Um, and we're going to get into this in the next episode, Justin, but mm. I'm going to just tip the hat to it of, yeah, sure. there is a pilgrim-like uh, there is a there's a pilgrimesque nature to our interaction here in this world where you're not seeing the kingdom of God physically taking mm -hmm. form in the say in the in the form of civility, meaning yeah. that like civil government, and you're not seeing the writers, Christ or the writers of the New Testament, expecting that. And that's right. that part of it we're saying there's an already not yet factor where God is already redeeming sinners. Right. But the redemption of the world is not yet, <coughs> right. along with our glorification, and right. and that's where we we would agree. We would say, like in postmillennialism, this optimism where the world is gradually moving in that direction. That's hard to argue for that, especially if you're going to argue it from a reinstitution of the civil government of the Mosaic law. So we're yeah. going to be governed by these regulations, and some of them, I'm just going to say, like the view of death, the death penalty for there's a yeah, lot of death penalties going on. Yeah. So Israel is governed by moral law and Israel is governed by positive laws that are ceremonial and civil. That's right. And our argument effectively is the moral law transcends based upon things we've already argued for. The positive laws related to the Mosaic covenant need not necessarily be carried over into the new covenant era because when a different covenantal arrangement is established, the laws that were uniquely situated and tethered to the, to the older covenant are not necessarily carried over. That's right. So that's an important argument that we want to make. Let's talk a little bit about typology, though, related even to the death penalty, like you said. Mm 
So the Mosaic civil code, the Mosaic judicial law demands the death penalty. Just give a couple of examples. Yeah. Generally, generally speaking, in situations of adultery, not sure. in every one, mm-hmm. but in most cases of adultery, death penalty. Breaking the child. Sabbath, yeah. right? Breaking the Sabbath, death penalty. All right, what's going on there? We would say that God is not giving a blueprint for civil government today where, let's just say, in the United States of America, yeah. we need to legislate the law in this way that if you have sex outside of marriage, you should die. And if you break the Sabbath, you should die. That's not what God means for the United States. What is he teaching his people, Israel, uniquely? He is teaching them through that civil code that violations of the moral law deserve death. That's right. To commit adultery, that's the breaking of the seventh commandment, right? To break Mm -hmm. the Sabbath is the breaking of the fourth commandment. And so if you break the moral law, you deserve to die, not just temporally, but eternally. And God's teaching his people that. The the curses of the Mosaic Covenant and the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 28, are applied uniquely to Israel under that covenantal arrangement. We ought not apply them to people holistically today, like prosperity preachers do. And we should not seek to overlay those principles onto nation states today, like theonomists attempt to do. That's right. And that's important to understand typology, even within the biblical covenants. Right. And there is a confusion in typology because, um, well, we can get into this in a whole other idea. But when, you, when you're, uh, another way of describing this is a shadow. So you have something that's reflecting, it's pointing you towards the image of the substance of it. But when you have the actual substance, you don't need the type, you don't need the shadow anymore. And what theonomists are doing is holding on to both. We're holding on to the type and the substance <coughs> at the same time and saying they're they're required. And uh, I, you know, I use this illustration a lot. It's not a perfect illustration, but when you go to a restaurant, they're giving you a type and a shadow of the food to come. And when they bring in your food, what do you no longer need? And they take it away from you. They take away the menu. That's exactly what's going on. But uh, there, it's complicated, and I think it's at times frightening to think well, about. And I think our theonomic friends agree with you regarding the ceremonial law. Right, and, and they, even exactly, and even regarding keeping the moral law for righteousness, they're going to agree with us completely. Where they're going to disagree is they're going to seek to apply the civil code right, and say that's not been clearly abrogated. And we are saying, yes, it has because of all of these arguments we've been making. There's well, a yes. threefold division of the law. There's the moral and positive law distinction. Positive laws do not transcend. Moral law does. That's right. And then finally, we've got the covenantal argumentation. What was God doing in and through Israel? Those judicial laws served a specific purpose for a specific people at a specific time in a specific mm-hmm. era. And now that that purpose has been accomplished, i.e., Jesus came, those laws no longer bind a nation state today. That's right. And the newness of the new covenant protects us from necessarily carrying over old covenant categories directly into this era. Yeah. I would even, That's it Tom, for me, buddy. Yeah. You Tom Hicks. You yeah, yeah. Tom Hicks had a really good argument. We'll put his link, uh, article in the link, but he was talking about how sometimes theonomists will make the argumentation that Israel um, enforced justice on nations that didn't uphold to the civil code. And the argument there was that, no, they weren't upholding civil code. That's positive. They wouldn't know to uphold it. That's a problem. Right. You can't. They, but they're enforcing the moral law. They were. It's right. They were enforcing the moral law, which is written on the heart, and right. apparently to God, it's sufficient for justifi- or for justifying his attribute or his you know retribution. I said I was done. Last super quick comment. <laughs> so we we want to be really plain that 
the appeal from our perspective, the appeal we make when it comes to the government of civil society, we appeal to the moral law and we mm-hmm. appeal to the light of nature. That's and right. that we think is how you should do civil government. Right. And in particular, when it comes to the moral law, you appeal to the second table, commandments five through 10, in terms of the things that we need to be doing for the good of our fellow man. Mm-hmm. And that, I just don't want to be misunderstood. We appeal to the moral law, especially the second table. We appeal to the light of nature and we do civil government that way. That right. would be our position on that. And I would add this, and because we're going to really, we're going to uh, go deeper into this next week and we'll, we might grab in some, a couple of things that we've left here, but I'll make this last comment and then we'll yep. move on to our next episode. But um, when, when we're thinking about the law, God didn't, God wasn't silent in the New Testament era about our involvement with civil government. He says that he is the one who institutes them. Yep. He is the one that governs them. And we, our response to them is then to uh, submit to them. And I, some of the arguments of the theonomist is, would For you sure. want to, do you want to submit to God's law or man's law? And I'm telling you, that's exactly what Christ has done through use of the moral law and God's governing sovereignly nations. We are called to submit to the law of men unless it contradicts the Bible. And I know that it sounds super unspiritual. It sounds better to say, no, I'm going to submit to God's law. Well, in God's law, in his command, he has told us to submit to the governing authorities. And that is his design for the New Testament era as he advances the kingdom. That is a conversation we're going to have next week. This relates to the church, believers, and the advancement of the gospel. Two kingdoms, the whole thing. Hey, guys, thank you for listening. I know it was long. (laughs) We're going to provide more material. Uh, Justin and I are working on a Theocast U class. It's going to be multiple hours with a syllabus that should be connected to this. This is simply an introduction. Please be gracious with us. We're trying to introduce people to the subject and have some responses that are gracious and kind. We seek to be gracious to you. We ask you to do the same. Thank you guys for supporting us. If you'd like to more information about this, you can go to theocast.org, join Simper Fermanda, go into the app, and we can do some conversations there as well. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.